Drew, what you just said, and I, I hope everyone was listening to that because that 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 last minute or two was an incredible summary of you know why the more you try to regulate housing, and again, everybody wants affordable housing, but how it has the direct uh, reverse impact where the fact is the more regulation you put on this, the more the private sector is saying, look, we're not going to uh, build more. We're not going to invest more in the property. So so it has the opposite effect of what's intended. And the answer to bring down costs, to your point, is more. You need you just need more housing of all types. And I think I know when Boston got rid of uh, rent regulation, there was this concern that rents were just going to go through the roof, but it didn't. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Looking forward to today's episode. Have James Nelson, one of New York City's top investment sales brokers with us today. Since 2018, he and his team, they've closed over $2.5 billion of deals. And he's been one of New York City's top brokers for a long time. So pumped to have him on and learn from him. Uh, He's also wrote a book called The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing. And he also has a podcast with the same title. So welcome. Drew, so wonderful to be here. And what a great thing. You were kind enough to come on my podcast and you have such an incredible story. And we've already gotten such rave reviews from that. So for your, for your audience who have not heard your story yet, you know, they if you're going to check out one episode from my podcast, uh, listen to Drew's story because you've got an incredible one. So happy to be here and, and share with your audience. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think, and I've gotten quite a few messages or different People say, and they saw that episode. So you've got a good uh, uh, active audience on your your podcast for sure. So, but nice. Well, yeah, I think, why don't you, if you want to just kind of tell us how you got going in, in brokerage and just bring us current day. Sure. So uh, I went to Colgate class in 98, senior spring. All my friends had investment banking jobs. I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'd go out to the West Coast to make movies or something until I realized that no one was going to pay me to do that. And I was $5,000 in credit card debt. So I went up to the Career Service Center looking for a job. And as luck would have it, there was a uh, an application due that day to go work for a real estate company in New York. Uh, I knew nothing about real estate. And believe me, today, for those of you who are listening who are maybe entering the job market, you you all are a lot more prepared, certainly, than I was, uh, certainly if you're listening to the show. Uh, but look, I, I got an opportunity. Uh, one of the co-founders of the company, Massey Knackle, was a Colgate grad. They gave me a shot, uh, although they joked afterwards that there was only two people who applied for the job and I was their second choice. So you know, we still like to laugh about that. But, um, you know, o- over time, I stuck with them for 17 years, was a partner. We sold the company to Cushman and Wakefield, which was a great thing. Had three great years at Cushman. And then a little over five years ago, um, received an opportunity to build out the investment sale platform here at Avis and Young. 
Uh, we're a global full service company with 120 offices around the world. Uh, but my group here in New York City focuses on investment sales, selling all asset classes, multifamily, retail, office, land development. So that's my uh, my story I, on the brokerage side. And we can certainly get into what I've been doing on the investing side as well as we get into the conversation. Yeah, I want to hear about that. I think on the, the brokerage side, I'd be interested. Um, you know, it's interesting that you you're not specializing just in one product type. So then how do you. I'd say, what what's your, your edge? How do you compete with the brokers that, let's say they only do office in New York, and if you guys are doing different product types, you have specialists on your team, or how do you how do you work that? So as a broker, there's a couple different ways that you can approach the market, because you can't do it all, right? So the, the company that I started with, Massey Knackle, had a territory system where we took New York City and we divided it up into 50 territories, and you had a broker in every neighborhood, and their job was to know that area and then handle the sales, which were any asset classes that were in that area, right? So you can do this from a geography standpoint. Then, as you mentioned, there's asset specialization where you can say, okay, I'm going to just do multifamily sales. I'm just going to do retail, triple net, office, development. Uh, there's also ways that you can just cover by clients, right? That's how a lot of mortgage brokers go about the business is they really follow what their clients are doing. So uh, I certainly grew up in the territory system. There's benefits certainly from covering a market that way if you want market share. Uh, but what I've found is that the asset classes have become so specialized, right? So if you're a multifamily investor today, uh, it's very, you know, to understand the ins and outs that I know you're you're very active, uh, you know, throughout the country. So you can appreciate this, knowing that operating, owning multifamily could be very different, say, in Chicago as it is in Florida, right? So, uh, you know, we have a multifamily team that we've built here that knows all the ins and outs uh, of how to operate and, and, uh, succeed here in New York, um, uh, investing in multifamily. And then we've got a separate retail group office and development. So that's, that's how we've chosen to cover the market here. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, and, uh, yeah, Bob Knackle, he's been really active on social media. I don't know if he just started in the last, uh, three months or if I just, he just finally hit the, all the algorithms for me on, on LinkedIn, at least Twitter, where I everywhere, every time I go on the platform, I see he's, do it posting something and yeah it's uh it's it seemed like i mean that was the number one company in new york or i mean that was like a i don't know a legendary run where he is yeah so i started my career with massey knackle so i started working as bob's associate 25 years ago and you know he's the master and i learned so much from him and even today he remains a mentor of mine and you know bob always said that we were in the information business as opposed to the sales business so the important thing and for your audience whether you're looking to broker whether you're looking to invest is become an expert and i think drew what makes you so successful is you really focused in on what your expertise is uh it's not you know multifamily even unto itself is a very broad category so what types of uh assets do you like to invest in how do you approach them so i think that's that's super important. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think social media today is just a great way to deliver content and value. And I, I think, you know, even you know this show, getting out information out there, hopefully this is going to inspire a lot of people to step up their game and invest. Yeah, definitely. What are some, anything's come to mind is like the big things that you learned from Bob? I'm sure so many, but any that are worth sharing with the audience? Well, I mean, certainly that specialization and that expertise. So when I started in the business, you know, even a year and a half, two years in when it was time for me to go out on my own and take over my own territory before I could pick up the phone. I had to study the Chelsea neighborhood in Manhattan for three months, get to know everything about the area, 
everything to know about all the sales that had taken place, retail rents. And when I went to start meeting with owners to see if they'd have interest in our selling the properties for them, when I was competing with more senior veteran brokers who had a lot more experience than I did, but I could run circles around them when it came to neighborhood expertise. And that was super helpful to me in my career. So I think specialization is really important, but also hard work. Like this is a business where, you know, you got to put in the hours. And so we were always, you know, early on the desk, 7 a.m., getting work done out of the way. So nine o'clock comes around, we could hit the phones. Yeah, that's so interesting you say that. I was actually, I was just in Phoenix this week and one of the brokers I was talking to, who's the top uh, multifamily investment sales guy, like in his uh, like size of the market. And he he was talking about how he drove the market. He saw every building, just so similar to you, I'm sure at that, you're specializing in Chelsea. You meet with that owner and you know every you'll know every owner on the block and he le- he learned every property in his in his sec- sector kind of the same same way and I asked when he drove the market and he said from five to eight and I was like and I asked well am or pm and he, and he said well am you can't you don't want to be missing your time where you can be calling owners and because he would be at his desk then by 8 30 yep. and then call till five or six or whatever time made sense to call to but he would never like never interrupt that block of time. If you need to drive the market, he was doing that on the weekends or in the right. you know early morning. And I asked how many brokers in the office did that. And he said, none. And so it was interesting where it was like, well, yeah, no kidding. You, you guys all became successful where if you're, um, learn, know every owner and putting in that kind of, uh, time finding the information, like it's no, no, uh, surprise how, how you and your team have been able to be so successful then James. So that's right. That's interesting. And so then, um, yeah, what have you been doing then on the investment side? Well, look, since last June, things have become very challenging for, you know, pr- pretty much everyone, regardless of market and, you know, for first post COVID and we we're finally recovering and getting things rolling again. And then rates start going up uh, last June. And not only has that put downward pressure on pricing, obviously more expensive to borrow money, uh, but it's also... I think put a lot of buyers on the sidelines. A lot of buyers have said, you know, look, I'm not going to jump in now. I'm going to wait six months. I'm going to wait a year. There's going to be better opportunities. There's going to be more distress. And so what's happened is sales volume has gone down dramatically. Uh, In New York City, uh, Manhattan dollar volume dropped 70% in the first quarter compared to the trailing four. And uh, building sales, the numbers were only off by a third. So we're still getting some deals uh, closed, but it's it's just a lot more challenging because again, buyers are very selective, and I think a lot of them are missing out on opportunities. I mean, Drew, I know you're out there looking for opportunities day in and day out, and you know, sure, everybody wants to time the market, but there's great opportunities out there now. One of the things I talk about in my book, which is one of the most important things to look for for a great opportunity, is seller's motivation. And there are owners who need to sell regardless of what's going on in the market, and sure, it could be distress, loan coming due, have to do something, but it could also be an estate sale partnership dispute. And I think the buyers who are out there who are being proactive and looking for opportunities uh, are are finding some great buys. I I think this next year or two, you're going to see some of the greatest opportunities you've ever seen. So this is a great time to be tuning in and thinking about your next investment. Yeah, actually, I did a a, a podcast that said based a solo one that basically said just that, where you know, you've been on the sidelines or you, the the brokers are too busy to call you back as a new buyer, you know, the last 
two three years well guess what like they got uh you 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 got you'll have uh you'll have a good shot at getting your deal now um and you're supposed to buy when there's blood in the streets and you know we're not quite at that point but you know that's uh we're we're getting there but yeah then what uh you know in the markets we're in with the, the transaction volumes down a similar amount and one thing that I'm finding kind of I don't know interesting about the time is since there's so few deals on the market uh, that are actually able to you know hit any sort of buyer expectation price wise it's like the distress the few distressed deals or people do need to sell or will meet the market and take a loss on their property if they bought in the last year or two like they they still get to me like aggressive pricing when we underwrite it like i haven't seen anything where it's like uh well they're just giving that away and you can make like a you know 15 20 percent a year on it um because then what have you what have you saw in in new york then because i'd say they're just velocity has slowed so much in the, the uh uh texas and in phoenix where we are that the prices haven't uh they've they've gone down obviously but then when you apply the new interest rate and how much money you need to put down with today's capital markets like it's not the returns aren't aren't screaming like they were in 2010 when i was when i was buying stuff at least not yet yeah no it's a really interesting perspective because if you don't have as much deal flow and there's still a lot of capital that people want to put to work uh and yeah part of it it's not just that it's more expensive to borrow money today, but you're getting less leverage, which is the point that you were making, especially all these regional banks who are now under pressure, right? They're, they're not going to stick their neck out, right? So that means, yeah, you got to bring more equity to the table and uh, equity is still more expensive than, than debt uh, in most cases. So, uh, but as far as New York, I mean, it's New York's an interesting market because, uh, and having done this now for 25 years, I mean, what you're doing nationally, I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you told me the most important metric that you look for when you invest is a cash on cash return. Like you you truly are solving for cash flow. You know, New York has always been so much about, uh, you know, the hockey stick where, you know, you're getting in, you know, m maybe it's a break even proposition, but it's heavy value add and you make your money on the sell, which is really tough now because who can project where cap rates are going to be in a couple of years from now. Uh, we hope that rates flatten out and, you know, great to hear that the Fed didn't, you know, increase rates again this week, although they're still set signaling that there might be another 50 bips out there before the, the end of the year. But but still, I mean, I, I think that the way you make money here in New York is that value add and improvement of the bottom line. And I would suggest probably anywhere in the country. I mean, for you listeners out there who are right now thinking about, hey, the only way this deal pencils is if I can sell it a, you know, a four and a half cap on the exit. I, I'd probably tell you, maybe take another look uh, at the opportunity because really the way that you add value is adding to that bottom line. And where we are having success, I mean, first of all, residential rents here, and I, I read an article in the, the Wall Street Journal this morning talking about how nationally some of the rents are starting to cool off because they increased at such a dramatic rate. And now you do have a lot more supply coming into certain markets. So that's important to study the market and understand that. But, you know, here in New York City, we, we have a housing crisis. We have such a shortage. A lot of our units ended up in rent regulation where, you know, th those units are are not freeing up. And so you have so much pressure on these remaining million or so units that exist that are fair market. Uh, and we don't even have new development happening now because we lost our tax abatement. So like in this strange way, we've seen our residential rents continue to increase at a dramatic rate. And so that's 
that's at least a, a positive if you're an investor, maybe not if you're a renter. But look, I see the opportunities right now. I love mixed use. I love retail. Retail is having a huge resurgence. And we see, especially here, High Street, New York, you know, we're talking Soho, you know, Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue. You know, post-COVID, uh, some of the, the rents were 20 cents on the dollar. And then all of a sudden, people are back. We're expecting 61 million visitors next year. Uh, they're shopping. And we're seeing huge upticks in, in retail rent. So I think that's also a really smart investment if you can find a situation where maybe it was a, a post-COVID deal on the retail, but you've got a short-term arrangement. You can go in there, look for a pop, and again, add value to that bottom line. Yeah, I t totally agree with that. I, it's this business, if you want to make it as simple as possible, like, and you're an investor, you need to create value on your deals. It's as simple as that. All the deals that we've done the best on, it was always how the ones we could move the NOI the most on. It's just as crazy. It's as simple as that, where we're never banking on, okay, we're just going to buy it and then interest rates will drop or the market rents will grow. Like we're the ones growing the rents with our business plan. So totally agree with you. And yeah, you can do that with any product type. You know, normally I'm always talking about multifamily, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of commercial deals and yeah, those uh, retail deal or any product type where you can go in and the rents are under market and buy it at a fair cap rate today, pop the rents to market. I mean, that's creating the value. That's what James talking about. And that's, yeah, that's definitely how you make money in this business. And if I'm talking to somebody who's, you know, newer or they bought a deal and they're wondering why it didn't go up that much, it's just, that's always the conversation I have. It's like, you need to create the value. It's great. Maybe you bought it at what was a good cap rate compared to other deals if it was stabilized. But if there's nothing you can do to it, it's you're just going to get the the market return and uh, for appreciation in some of these markets. You know, I've invested in Chicago for a long time and, you know, probably New York's been the same the last five years, but it's it's gone up and down, but it's basically been flat. You know, Chicago, I would say appreciation has been pretty much next to zero since 2015 through 2023 on most product types. But we've crushed it on all of, on all of our deals because we are the ones adding the value. So that, yeah, that makes sense completely, James. I actually thought you were going to say that New York was um, uh, maybe holding up a little better than that because in Chicago, um, prices have pretty much on the multifamily side not not dropped much at all due to interest rates. Um, I should say that differently. The rents have gone up so much the last two years with people returning to the city and similar thing. There's almost no new supply except in one neighborhood where there's a, a bunch, but in all the other neighborhoods, there's almost none. And then rents have gone up five to 10% a year, the last two years, depending on where it is. And that's offset the value drop from the, the interest rate pop. So somehow Chicago is like, uh, just done great the last year and a half. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's been, it's, it's, you know, Chicago and New York, they've been the contrarian markets because look, I mean, there's no challenge that we or no secret that, our markets are heavily regulated. There is that fear. I mean, uh, the politicians uh, have uh, on the far left been proposing basically universal rent control here in New York. It hasn't passed. It's, it's you know, we hope it's not going to pass because, you know, then a lot of the investor operators who've already left our market for, you know, pro-business states, uh, we want them to stay here. We want them to continue invest in the, the multifamily stock here and build new ones. But uh, no, we, we've actually, so 
our cap rates actually jumped up dramatically in 2019 before rates went up. We used to be a three and a half cap market. We went up to a five cap market before rates began to go up. Why? Because in 2019, there was a huge new, used to be here in New York that you could take a rent stabilized apartment and you could decontrol it. If the tenant left, you could do a certain amount of work and you could charge a fair market rent. In 2019, they got rid of it. They said, once stabilized, always stabilized. Well, what did investors say? Hey, if I can't take my building from a three and a half to a 5% return because you're going to cap what I can raise my rent, I'm going to ask for that five cap day one. So then rates start going up. Now we're seeing five and a half cap, six cap. So you can actually get positive leverage on our deals here because our, our caps are uh, have increased. Whereas, you know, look, I know these Southeast markets and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, you know, buying in those markets. And look, I, I get it. Pro business, you got people moving there. But if you bought at a three, three and a half cap and now you got to turn around and borrow at five and a half, you know, you're going to have some challenges. For sure. And I think most all the Sunbelt deals that I saw uh, are definitely everything that we bought. It was maybe you're going in at a four cap or a three uh, something cap rate, but they're all stabilizing north of a five cap once you mark the rents to market. Uh, so there's so much loss to lease in those markets, at least um, to capture. But that's that's interesting. You think then on the the uh, the rent controlled deals in New York, are you able to grow the rents at least in line with expenses? Because I know um, that was something I heard some chatter about where it was like, yeah, we um, like your your NOI. Some people were underwriting where it's got to be. It's it's going down, but I might have been not hearing that right where they were. Yeah, we, we, we have a rent guidelines board and every year they debate what type of increases they're going to get. And it's, uh, as you can imagine, a highly publicized and political uh, event. And, you know, look, the the tenant rights groups want rent to be frozen, despite the fact that, to your point, increases on operating expenses, taxes, you know, again, landlords have not kept up over the last couple of years with these increases, which are typically, you know, two, three percent. Uh, so that that is a, a risk where if you buy into uh, rent regulated product that you are at the city's mercy on what type of increases every year. But look, we still, like I said, have fair market units where you can increase them at a market rent. And, you know, there's been a lot of, like I said, a lot of pressure to try to regulate those, but it hasn't happened yet. So thankfully, there's still some kind of equilibrium out there to say that you just can't have landlords here completely subsidize affordable housing. In fact, what's interesting, Drew, is there's a a lawsuit that's found its way uh, to federal court uh, because, look, this is not just a New York or a Chicago thing. I mean, L.A. has universal rent regulation now, uh, Portland. And the question is, is this, you know, is this a taking? Can government actually put restrictions on the private sector saying, okay, we're going to uh, make you uh, reduce, you know, regulate your rents to provide affordable housing. So you are shifting the responsibility of affordable housing onto the private sector without due compensation, which is a pretty compelling argument, right? So look, I'm all for, we need affordable housing for sure, but there needs to be incentives and I believe really a public-private partnership to make that happen. You can't just, you know, put that on the private sector without due compensation and say, okay, you, you know, you now have to pr- make this all affordable. So 
again, we, we could spend a whole hour on this, probably not. I, mean, I don't know if that's helpful to your audience or not. But I, I think if you take anything from this, it's you do have to understand the political landscape and, you know, what are the considerations for that uh, before you, you dive into a market? Yeah, it's yeah. The whole rent control thing is just is very interesting to me uh, from almost a different different lens too. where, you know, all the politicians, it's well intentioned. They want to have affordable housing uh, rents and so many of these cities are, are very high for what people make on, you know, just your average person. Um, but what's what's crazy to me and anyone who took Econ 101 is actually the way to make mo- the most affordable housing is have some sort of program where you'd incentivize building, have more supply, then prices will go down or not go up as fast. And yeah. like that, people sound like, oh, well, that sounds great for you as a real estate investor, more buildings. It's actually better to have less buildings. I buy them. So if there's less of them, that means they're worth more. So that's it actually would be worse for me if there was more building. The people who benefit the most from rent control besides the tenant who can hang on to a unit super cheap for 50 years is uh, the the few that actually own the the uh, decontrolled or non-rent control buildings in these cities. You know, if you own a building in, you know, New York or LA that doesn't have rent control, you're benefiting from the fact that whatever, I don't know the percentage, but a huge percentage of the units are not available to your, you know, uh, new renter. They're basically offline and don't exist from a rental standpoint because someone who's paying 800 bucks from 1988 is still in there. So like that actually, so it's, it's interesting to see from that lens because they, the politicians, they have good intentions with this and they actually get the exact outcome, uh, and in the reverse, they're getting, they're getting the opposite of what they want. And then you can never renovate these buildings, so then the plumbing and electric is uh, in horrible condition because you can't if you can't move people out, you obviously can't turn the power or water off. So um, you know then they don't ever get improved. Where you know as Phoenix, Texas, Chicago doesn't have rent control, so Chicago, Florida, they don't have any of these like super old buildings that need uh, that are in disrepair if they're at least if they're in a nice area because someone will buy them and you know vacate the building and then renovate it and then put it back on the market. So it's, uh, it's just interesting how you get the exact opposite. You get worse housing and higher prices trying to, trying to help out everybody. Drew, what you just said, and I, I hope everyone was listening to that because that, that, that last minute or two was an incredible summary of, you know, why the more you try to regulate housing. And again, everybody wants affordable housing, but how it has the direct uh, reverse impact where the fact is the more regulation you put on this, the more the private sector is saying, look, we're not going to uh, build more. We're not going to invest more in the property. So so it has the opposite effect of what's intended. And the answer to bring down costs, to your point, is more. You need you just need more housing of all types. And I think I know when Boston got rid of uh, rent regulation, there was this concern that rents were just going to go through the roof, but it didn't because rents across the board smoothed out, encouraged more developers to bring more product online. So uh, again, we could spend a whole show talking about this, but um, I I, I wish the elected officials heard what you just had to say because it's uh, really at the core of the matter. I'll I'll, I'll put it online for them all to enjoy. But yeah, that, well, yeah, then let's, let's talk about, about your book. I mean, there's a lot of good insights in there. You know, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, maybe you, they know about real estate investing, they've read a book or went to school, had some real estate classes, but then once you get out in the real world, you don't, you don't really know how to, I don't know, how do you handle some of these interactions? How do you set yourself apart? What do you really do? So that's 
So I like you have some uh, great points around that stuff in your in your book. So why don't you walk us through some of the the tips in that, if you'd like, or however you want to talk about it. Sure. So Drew, I really appreciate uh, what you had to say about the book because I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've always been asked the question, James, what's the book? How do I learn how to do this? You know, clients maybe they have a son or daughter looking to get into the business, and this is kind of a business where you learn by doing, and there's not a lot of guidebooks along the way. And sure, there's a lot of books out there on how to kind of get in the game, kind of fix it, flip it, rich dad, poor dad, house hacking. I mean, look, that's all a great way to start off, you know, but if you want to take your business to the next level, like you have, Drew, and do more serious investing, you know, 10 units, 100 units, you know, understanding how you actually do it, a practical how-to guide. That's what I wanted to put in the book. So anyone, whether you've been doing this for 20 years or two days, you can read this book and it's going to show you exactly what to do, right? And so, and I, I've been on a, a speaking tour with this book and I've, I've spoken at some of the top real estate programs out there and the master's students and so smart. They understand the numbers, how to underwrite the theory, but then I'll talk to them after and I'll ask them a question. Okay, great. How do you do it? How do you buy a property? How do you find it? And you get this frozen look on their face where, well, hey, I'm just the numbers guy. I'm going to go run numbers and I'm going to be the analyst and I'm going to join a big company and they're going to have an acquisitions department. So I'll let them worry about how to find the properties. And the point is, look, regardless of where you fit into the transaction, if you're a broker, you're an investor, you're a lender, you know, you're the analyst, you're the acquisitions person, you have to have an understanding of how the whole thing works, right? And so my book really lays it out from start to finish. Okay, these are the different ways you can get involved in real estate investing. These are the different asset classes. You can either be a general partner, you can be a limited partner. These are the people that are involved in the transaction. And what I've learned throughout my career is it's the people involved who make a deal successful. My first podcast interview ever, I had with Bruce Ratner, prolific developer. He's built over 50 projects in New York. Uh, built Atlantic Yards, part owner of, of the Brooklyn Nets. And I asked him, I said, how did you do it? What was your secret to the success? He said, James, it was all about the people. I had the right specialists who had that knowledge, right? And that's so important today. So this book tells you, you know, how to get involved, who are the players, and then actually how to source opportunities. How do you actually find great deals? There's a whole part in there about how you work with brokers, you know, if if you listen to my my friend Bo Berry, he wrote a book called Multifamily Investors Who Dominate. In his market in Florida, he believes he tracks that ninety three percent of deals are sold through brokers. Okay, so if brokers are handling the majority of deal flow, probably a good idea to know how to cultivate relationships with brokers and how to get great deals from them. And it still amazes me. I would say ninety ninety five percent of my calls are outgoing. You know, meaning I'm calling investors saying, hey, I got this great opportunity. Do you want to buy it? And you might say, well, James, that's your job. You're a real estate broker. You have a property to sell. Of course, you're supposed to reach out. But Drew, and I'm sure you do this, the really good investors, they don't sit around and wait for the phone call, right? They're calling the broker saying, hey, what's going on? I, you know, do you have anything else in the pipeline? What, what else do you have? I, I see what you have online, but th there's probably some better stuff out there. Hear of anything off market? Or they're saying, hey, let's sit down for a cup of coffee. Let's really get to know each other. And I think things like that, cultivating those relationships to get great deal flow, right? You want to be top of mind, right? And then what to look for in a great opportunity. Not just, we talked a little bit about seller's motivation, but 
you know, what are signs on how you can reposition a property? How can you really maximize value? So it really goes step by step to really give you practical. We call it the insider's edge, right? This is a business where you can gain the edge by, uh, you know, a lot of these steps to outperform the competition. I think that's great advice. And this is a real life example. You know, I said I was in Phoenix this week. We were doing what you were saying. Like we haven't we haven't seen a lot of these brokers in quite a while just with how slow the market's been. So we were there for for three days. First day was we were looking at the deals we were rehabbing and then got drinks with a broker, dinner with a buddy. Then next day was uh, breakfast with a broker, coffee with a broker, lunch, just at literally every time slot where we wanted to, all these folks where we haven't toured a deal in a long time where it was, you know, lunch, then get a coffee, then office meeting, drinks, dinner where, um, you know, even when we were getting the, the drinks or it's like, should we eat? Like, no, we gotta, we gotta go to a dinner after this. <laughs> like we got, um, we had to pack it all in, in just a couple of days, but that's really important. Cause you actually get to get to, got to get to know them. I mean, these are real people, not, and not just, uh, uh, you know, real people who want feedback on their deals. I'm sure it's all, you know, these are, um, you know, like you, the, how to work with the brokers is really important where, you know, I see, a, a, I mean, one mistake I see all the time is people where they get sent a deal, it's not a fit and they don't tell the broker why they just don't call them back. Um, you do get so many calls and inbound things. That's why they do it. I'm sure you've, if, if no one's ever told you that James, or you, you're getting flooded with stuff, but then if it's a broker sending you a deal, you, you should tell them why you don't like it then, then they can refine what they're sending you. You know, that's always like one thing that I'm telling everybody. So yeah, I think that's uh, great points. Yep, that's great advice. I think you know what would um, you what would should a buyer be doing then? Let's say they want to see either off market deals or be sort of top of mind with a broker. What would be what would be some things you'd recommend they do? I mean, obviously, read we got to read the Insider's Edge, and then what else we got? <laughs> yeah. What else we got to do? <laughs> well, especially if you're new to the business, right? or you're breaking into a new market. And Drew, we actually talked about this when you came on, on my show, which is it, it's, it can be tough to be the outsider because a lot of these brokers, right, they, I don't wanna say they wanna make their job easy, but they want the highest degree to execute, highest degree of certainty, right? So they've got their stable of buyers who have performed over the years, probably round tripped on a couple deals where, hey, I sold you this deal, and then five years later, you gave me the deal to resell. So. To kind of break in, that can be challenging, right? Because the brokers are saying, okay, I don't know you yet. You haven't proven yourself. You know, are you going to perform, right? Now, today, when the market is a lot tougher, right? And you made the point, a lot of these long-term investors are on the sidelines. So that helps when the a lot of the competition has been weeded out, but you still have to demonstrate that you have the capability. My advice to you all listening is don't oversell yourself. Don't come in like if this is your first investment, don't try to pretend like you've been doing this 20 years. But you might want to think about getting a good partner who does have that track record because track record is really important, right? When you're going to buy the deal that they know that you can perform. So you really have to show and demonstrate that you have the ability to transact either on your own or with a broker. Make sure that they know that you're coming in with reasonable uh, underwriting and You've got your financing lined up because that's really key. And then just, again, cultivating those relationships. I mean, we were just talking about that, but going out and having coffee, getting to know that broker on another level than just a transactional level. 
like finding out, you know, what things do you have in common, like really building those relationships. And then I think also thinking about your relationship with your broker is a two way street. Just don't think I'm going to sit here and again, wait for opportunities to be presented. Maybe you see deals in the market that are off market and maybe they're not for you, but you call the broker and say, hey, just to let you know, I looked at this deal. It's not for me, but you might want to call the owner. Maybe they're interested in finding a broker. Maybe it's a listing for you. Okay. Now, wow, that broker's thinking this buyer went out of their way to try to help me, right? I'm going to return the favors. So think of it in that light as well. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So what is there anything you see people who then, um, yeah, and I really like the don't oversell your stuff because that's something that I, I'd never realized I was doing that, like not I was, I never oversold myself. I, and I didn't really realize how that was helping me till I was, someone was explaining what they were doing and it was so much of a black box kind of confusing. Where's their equity coming from? What are you, what are they even doing? And I, and it was kind of funny where I was like, this is so confusing. I, this would be hard to work with where for me, I always just tell people like exactly what I'm doing. It's a pretty open book. And then, um, you know, like then they, they know what they're getting. So they're not like, they could at least understand like, well, he's going to get the money from this and here's his lender and his plan where some of these folks, you, you ask them that and you don't, you can't follow who their lender is, where the down payment's coming from, what they're going to do with the property, how they got to the price. Like they can't explain anything. So you want to be able to explain all those things like James is saying and not, and you don't need to oversell it. You know, if obviously if you've never done a deal before, it will help for everything, convincing the broker, uh, getting your loan approved, everything uh, to have a partner who's done it before. Um, and that's the same thing I say, because I, I talked to somebody uh, that wanted to get into uh, from like the mortgage broker side to being a principal. And it was my advice on how to do it was one word on your first deal. Is you got a partner to get into like bigger stuff. If you're going from from scratch like he was. Drew, I also want to share uh, another great piece of advice you had from our show, because when I asked you how you went into other markets, you said that you utilized the brokerage network. So the brokers who you had transacted with in Chicago, now again, this only works with a national firm, but they were then able to vouch for you when you were buying in a new market. And that's that's a great way to do it as well, where you can kind of get that warm introduction where this is someone who has a proven track record. Right. And I, I made it a point to ask if they, you know, I'd ask, let's say the broker in, in this was for Phoenix, do you know this person in Chicago? They'd say, yes, I'd say, then ask, ask, you know, if you'd like about how we've, we've worked in Chicago then to that person. And a lot of times they knew the person in Chicago really well, because, uh, you know, from going on awards trips or different conferences, the companies had, so they actually, you know, like, yeah, I was just at the four seasons in Mexico on the big producers trip or whatever with him. I, I know. And then, um, and then you, you can get that. It wasn't actually, I had, I had done the. I guess it wasn't a warm intro that would, that would have maybe been smarter. I was more around the time we were offering on deals and it was sort of like, you know, if you, you've never met us other than just walking to the property a few times, like ask this guy how we've done and we've bought, you know, five deals with him. And, uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely that, that helped a lot. And then, yeah, to get the first relationships going, it was just, yeah, don't oversell what you're doing and then perform. So don't be retrading over ticky tech stuff. It's, drives everybody right. crazy Absolutely. So, good Vince yeah I've been a seller in Chicago on a few deals and these people wear, are wearing me out with all their little little ass to see why <laughs> everyone was sending us to their deals because we weren't we were never we never do that so yeah great well yeah I think that's that's perfect let's leave it there James how do people get uh 
get in touch with you. They want to want to follow you, hear more about what you're doing. That's awesome, dude. Thank you. So jamesnelson.com is where you can find out about my podcast, video series, the book, white papers. And it's really, uh, you know, I built the website for the investor, right? So it's how can I help you become successful, help you gain the insider's edge to real estate investing. You can also connect with me at James Nelson NYC. Pretty active on LinkedIn, Instagram. Need to do more on on the Twitter. We were talking about before about some of these groups out there. I know a lot of investors out there raising a lot of money on Twitter. So um, I'm sure I'll, you'll see me there in a more meaningful way soon. But uh, this was really awesome, Drew. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Hope this was uh, really helpful to your audience. And I, I think that the last thing I would say to everybody, and this is from one of my mentors, Rod Santamassimo who wrote a book called Knowing Isn't Doing. So hopefully you were taking notes during this because, you know, a lot of value here. But, you know, again, don't let that knowledge just stay in your head. Like really put these into practice because knowing isn't doing. So thanks again, Drew, for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being on, James. This was a great episode. And that's, yeah, great closing advice. You know, the people that you see that are successful doing what you want to do, usually they're not uh, they didn't go to Harvard for undergrad and MBA or whatever their family was in it. It's usually they just, they, they knew a lot of the same stuff you did and they took a risk and went for it and then they, they did it. So probably, yeah, thanks for being on. Awesome. Thanks again. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.